Hello and welcome to Life Changing Science, the Bible the Podcast. I'm your host, Zeeshan, and on today's episode, we have Karen Katz. Karen is a legal and healthcare executive, entrepreneur, external relations and communications, fundraising, and business development leader. She is currently the deputy director at the Office of Behavioral Health at MassHealth. Karen was one of the very first members on the Biobuilder board. She helped shepherd the nonprofit from its earliest days, oversaw significant expansion of the board, and helped Biobuilder think about how to keep the content freely accessible while still being able to bring the curriculum to new partnerships and collaborations. Let's dive right into this episode. To begin our conversation, I'd first like to ask you about how you first got involved with BioBuilder and I guess more specifically, what did you and Natalie discuss when you first met? Sure. Well, I think that it's important to note that I've known Natalie for an exceptionally long time because we attended the same high school. And that's how I know Natalie, is from high school. So when I moved to Boston, I think she was already here. And of course, we kept up a friendship and um, a connection. She began building BioBuilder alone. And then as she grew and grew, she started to need more support. So she reached out to me um, in part to discuss some strategic things as well as um, some legal issues. She was working on forming the entities that were going to become BioBuilder as well as negotiating some of the intellectual property issues. Uh, So at the time I was working in a law firm and I was also serving um, as a mentor at MIT in the venture mentoring service. So I had a couple of different connections to not only MIT where Natalie was working and where BioBuilder kind of launched, but um, also had some legal expertise to bring to the the party, so to speak. So when we first met and spoke about BioBuilder specifically, although I'd known Natalie for a long time, it was mostly focused on um, the entity formation and what the challenges were or were not going to be in terms of licensing out the intellectual property that she had created from MIT, which is a very common thing that um, entrepreneurs go through. And Natalie certainly is an entrepreneur in terms of launching this curriculum. So that was uh, our, our, our first um, round of discussions focused on that. And I think it was through that work that I joined the board. How would you define the term meaningful education? Well, I think that what's meaningful in any educational context is learning something that's applicable to your world or your life. So one of the nice things about the BioBuilder curriculum, right, is that it's all about how does, how does this work? How does um, bioengineering really impact the world, like how can we take something and show you what a difference it can make in the present day? You might also consider something that's a hands-on learning experience also to be meaningful in that while doing it, you're learning, you're learning how to do the the activity, but you're also learning um, perhaps it's, is the right career fit for you? Is this something you want to keep pursuing? So I think that when meaningful kind of comes into the, the fore, it's meaningful for the learner, meaningful in terms of the output and meaningful in terms of career development. I mean, one of the things that Natalie recalled and and tells as part of her story, and I I truly feel this, is that in high school, we do a lot of textbook learning. It's very dry, lots of problem sets and labs that have been done for years and years and years. And a lot of times it's hard, particularly in some of the hardcore science classes, chemistry, physics, um, 
to understand how any of this matters to anybody. Why are we learning this? Or we feel like we might be learning this in a vacuum. Um, and so the idea around the BioBuilder curriculum is to give a better set of experiments, to give a better reason for these experiments, and to explain why the types of work that you're doing really is being used today in the real world, right? And, and it, it, that this is how science is applied. So the meaningfulness behind the BioBuilder curriculum in part is really application. But Natalie's done a wonderful job, you know, really being the, the spokesperson of the curriculum, you know, going way beyond our borders to make sure that, meaning the borders of Boston, um, to make sure that it's available and accessible, you know, partnering with um, teachers across the country and, and I know outside of the country in order to just get the materials out there so that you can pique more people's interests. When I were and, talking earlier about, you know, your experience in terms of, you know, liking the sciences, liking doing the podcasting, liking marketing, liking communications, and how does this cataclysm of things all kind of come together? And what does it mean? Well, on, on many levels, what it does do is all of these disparate inputs tends to end up in the land of discovery, right? There's, there's really no, there's no science sometimes to how a new drug breakthrough happens. It's let's try a lot of different things and have a lot of different minds focus on this problem and see what we get. I'm not saying that science isn't methodical. I'm not saying that it isn't, you know, something that's very focused, but I think that bringing in a lot of different ideas and people into the BioBuilder curriculum will basically ultimately benefit the scientific community because you're not having people just from Boston, for instance, pursuing careers in synthetic biology. What were some of the initial challenges BioBuilder faced as an early stage nonprofit? I think a big issue might have been how to think, how to go about thinking about how to keep the content freely accessible while still being able to bring the curriculum to new partnerships and collaborations. Like any startup, and this certainly was what was going on when I was first involved, you have lots of different things. Building the website, figuring out what kind of corporate entity you're going to be, figuring out how to get at the intellectual property, as I mentioned to, and licensing out from MIT, fundraising, grant writing, uh, building out your board. I mean, one of the things I was involved with for Natalie is, is I'm not you know, an intellectual property lawyer and I'm not, a, um, you know, I don't have all of the skills she needed. So I recruited a lawyer to come onto her board that had a broader set of skill set and could provide, you know, more advice. And she was during that time frame building out her board, thinking of her financial strategy, you know, am I going to be a grant funded organization? Am I going to get money another way to run, run this? And, and, and so on. And so all of those things kind of come together. You know, you're setting up a business in some respects, you know, so how am I going to advertise myself? How am I going to recruit people to get my, you know, who wanted to get my curriculum? How am I going to educate them? You know, some of it was serious blocking and tackling. I remember Natalie had some relationships with um, Biogen so she could use their conference room space in order to have teachers come. She could educate them on how to run a BioBuilder club or how to run a class and so forth. So, you know, I think that she found herself doing everything, right? That jack of all trades feeling where you're one day you're 
setting up space. The next day you're writing a contract. The next day you're talking to a bunch of teachers. The next day you're writing your TED talk and delivering it. The next day, you know, you're over here and over there and everywhere. So, I mean, super exciting and it's super challenging because, you know, you're jumping into things that you may never have done before. One of the exciting things that Natalie was going through during the early days of BioBuilder was figuring out where BioBuilder ought to reside. It had been residing at MIT. It was, you know, something she did out of her office. And over time, she was looking for other places that would be more appropriate. And I think for a while, she was aligned with Lab Central. Uh, now she's got space at Ginkgo Bioworks. But, um, you know, being connected with MIT and yet becoming a separate entity was really part of Natalie's transition and BioBuilder's transition from what might be sort of a satellite of an MIT kind of uh, thing to you know its own full-fledged educational organization that was working towards it, its own goals. And so watching that um, just location transition was certainly a very exciting thing to, to witness over the past um, 10 or so years. Was BioBuilder more of a constant or core part of your identity as a professional rather than a job? So it's definitely more part of um, my identity or, or career path. Since being in Boston, I've been involved in the biotech community in many different ways. Um, I've worked with science clubs for girls. I'm on the board of AdGene, which is a, a plasmid repository, uh, a, a large one. Um, I've been involved with BioBuilder. I've been involved with um, a, a number of women in science groups and, and, and I've worked at law firms and um, law schools in the areas of intellectual property law um, and, and so forth. So it, it, I've been in and out of the community of biotechnology for um, a significant portion of my career, as well as downstream from it in healthcare. So presently I'm um, a deputy director at Medicaid here in Boston. Um, very much downstream from molecules and synthetic biology and how we make drugs, but nonetheless, you know, connected to the healthcare system. So BioBuilder uh, was certainly one of the things that I was involved with because it aligned with a lot of my everyday work. Plus, of course, as I mentioned, I'd known Natalie for a long time, so it was important to me to support her in, in her launch of this endeavor. How has BioBuilder um, influenced other aspects of your life in terms of deciding which career steps to take next? And I guess this question can also be rephrased as what are some of the key culture skills and sensibilities from your experience at BioBuilder that have served you well? One of the skill sets I brought to BioBuilder and that I learned from my work there is that sort of entrepreneurial startup mentality where you jump in, you learn as much as you can, you ask lots of questions, and you figure out how to take the idea to a next level. And that is a skill set that, along with my law background, I've brought to many situations where there's a problem, it needs to be solved, and so what is a framework or rubric I can apply in order to, to take that problem and move it at least to the next level. So the experience at BioBuilder many years ago really, for me, helped me hone that type of skill set of, okay, we have a problem. We need to figure out how to get something done here. Um, what do we need? You know, do we need more information? Do we need talent? Do we need some advice? Uh, do we need a strategic plan? Uh, and so forth. So 
honing those skills in the biofilter environment was really wonderful for me. And it was a skill set that I was able to, you know, build upon and leverage in, in other work that I've done throughout my career. What would your advice be to life scientists that have just graduated college and they're interested in learning more about building a startup or being part of a team to build a startup? Um, again, broad question, I know. Broad uh, question. And, and certainly, you know, there's lots of ways to get there or to get, get, get many places. But I always tell people um, to try something in the field. So if you graduate and you can get yourself a job in a lab, go do it. Go do it. And while you're there doing the work, you know, make connections, ask people, find out about other people's career paths so that you can get a sense of, well, if I want to be like my boss, what did she do to get there? If I want to be like the person who runs the vivarium, what did they do to get there? Do I like, of course, the work that I'm actually doing? Is this some working in a lab? Is this something for me? Or, <coughs> excuse me, or do I like to do something else? Um, I think it's helpful to just to, to dive into a, um, an environment, but also be a student of that environment. So not just take a job and work nine to five, and that's that chop chop. But while you're there, ask, like I said, ask questions and really be a student of that environment because that will then help inform where you're going to go next. You know, one of the things college doesn't do, do well, it does okay, but you don't usually come out of college knowing what it's like to work anywhere. You know, might, you might've had a few internships here or there and that would be great. Or if you went to a school that was focused on some type of rotation into the work world and, and back, that's even better. But really until you start working, you don't understand how, how you fit. You know, you could be a very brilliant scientific mind, but maybe you find staying indoors all day awful, right? So maybe, maybe a lab isn't gonna be for you, but you may not know that until you just give it a try. And, I, um, and so I, I think um, the more that one can say yes to opportunity, the better off you will be in terms of um, finding your career fit. In, you've worked in the legal field, um, I would say for most of your career. Do you have, have you had uh, people that have come from a biology background? So they've done their undergrad in biochemistry um, and now they've sort of transitioned into the working on the legal side of things? Oh, absolutely. So it's a very popular potential career path for people. It happens in many ways, but to become a patent lawyer, typically law firms want somebody who has their PhD. And oftentimes people who get their PhDs and are working in a lab start to think twice about the decision. They think twice about the decision because it takes a long time to get there and maybe they don't like the money and they wanna make more money. Very typical, nothing wrong with this, this circumstance at all. And so a law firm will often pay for someone like that to go to law school and work as a patent agent and later a patent attorney for, you know, um, for the law firm. So um, I've interfaced with many, many, many PhDs that are looking to make that career transition. And it's, and it's a big one when you're going from lab, you know, bench science to working in an, in an office, you know, I mean, and, and talking to people about science, but not necessarily doing the work. So that is a very um, common way for people to enter the law field with a science background. You don't have to have a PhD, but most of the law firms kind of um, are looking for that. 
But the other area that it, um, is frequent is in the area of tech transfer, where people that have a, a undergrad or master's degree, maybe don't want to get a PhD, will go into tech transfer working for a university like an MIT that has a very large technology transfer office. And they'll work with people from the outside seeking to, to license out technology from the university. They'll work with the people that are doing the discoveries at the university to ensure that they're um, patented and protected. So there's, there's lots of different roles within a tech transfer office where you may not need to have already obtained your PhD. So those are two areas that are legally related that um, are very common. And then um, even just working on material transfer agreements at a university or at a place like Agene is another um, science and law overlap that um, people will, will pursue. One other question about the early days regarding the legal side of things, because it was part of MIT, Bible was part of MIT initially, and just the legal side of taking, I don't know what the exact terms are, but what was the most difficult challenge for you in the process of turning Bibles into an independent company? Because I presume MIT would, would have owned some of the IP and they provided some of the lab space. And I'm sure they would want something in return from Biobuilder. At MIT, the majority of the intellectual property, right, is you know, a molecule or something that's easily patented. But what Natalie had created was um, a, a curriculum and, and, and um, some you know, descriptions of how to do something and, and sort of processes. So for MIT, that was somewhat of an unusual kind of intellectual property. And luckily, they weren't really seeking money, you know, for that, or looking for some type of royalty stream as they might have with a hard science type of discovery. It did take some time, honestly, to um, have everyone educated as to what it was she created, what its value was, and then just get the paperwork in place so that she had permission to use what she created, which I know sounds kind of crazy, right? But she created it at a time when she was working at MIT, and when you work for a comp- when you work for an organization like that, you know there's paperwork in place that requires that anything you discover or create or invent, they they own it. So we had to go through some back and forth, and I think that the tech transfer office in particular just was new to the idea of of the the curriculum being the invention. You know, if it had been a molecule, if it had been some kind of you know gizmo or a new type of code, it would have. You know, they're like, oh yeah, we, all, we know all about that. But, but what um, Natalie had in, invented, so to speak, was something just new to them. So it took some time to just, you know, get the documents in place and, and then get her well on her way um, thereafter. So we're entering um, a new phase of education. And I think we have been for a few years. I think Bible is definitely front and center, at least in the, in the biotech sphere. How do you view Biobuilder now? when compared to when you first started with Biobuilder in terms of what are some of, one, what are some of the questions that you're still asking yourself, something like right now, that you were also asking yourself a decade ago? And what are some of the process, most surprising questions that you've had to ask yourself recently when it comes to a new phase of education or developing a curriculum or just about Biobuilder in general? I think that where I, Biobuilder was a very small entity, Natalie was making the kits and sending them to people, right? She didn't even have anyone to help her. So 
the organization has grown in that she's got people to help her and to make new curricula every year and what have you. So the growth has been phenomenal and that's been fabulous. I think the other thing concomitant with that growth is the use of platforms, frankly, like this one right now, you know, in theory, you could join a biobuilder club and be in Mexico and join a club in somewhere, you know, in the United States, there's so much more connectivity that it's easier to learn and to get into this hands-on learning. Certainly the pandemic has taught us even more about what's capable, what technology is capable of and how we can leverage it to learn more. So not only her growth and the expansion of the curricula and development of more and more curricula, but then also the leveraging of technology has made it even more important, but also more accessible for people across the world to, to get access. So to circle back to what you and I spoke of in the beginning, I've always been a big proponent of hands-on learning, learning by doing. And what I've seen, I don't think my definition of that has changed. And I don't think the value for me, at least, has changed in that type of learning. But the avenues to pursue that type of learning have really grown. You know, programs like BioBuilder now exist, certainly the internet and the connectivity and access exist. Almost all major universities have put much of their coursework online for free. So people can at least learn a little bit along the way about whatever it is that's interesting to them without writing a big check for tuition. So our ability to access at least you know, the basics and get information has really improved and grown. And then this type of curriculum that BioBuilder has presented allows people to really be applying what they learn, you know? So I think that there's just so many more avenues to pursue meaningful education today than there used to be. You mentioned that universities have put up a lot of their coursework online and then with Coursera and edX, you can become a full-fledged software engineer in a year. And I know Google are launching their own set of certifications, but if you complete all of those, Technically, you, they'll be okay with you working full time, regardless of whether or not you have a college degree. 2020, everything's been online. And I think most universities are now in a hybrid format where a lot of the lecture materials online and people only going to college for um, lab work or small group tutorials. I, I want to ask you if in the near future, if you can see universities teaming up with initiatives such as BioBuilder to instead of where Bible is integrated into college curriculum. Let's say Bible will allow you, if you're a college student, you can take classes from Bible or attend a Bible club, and that can count towards credit for university courses. Um, I think that would be really interesting because if you can, because there'll be not just for synthetic biology or, or biotech, I think this can be, I know you can take a few software courses online and count that towards credit towards a university degree. Can you see that happening with BioBuilder? I think that would be really, really cool where instead of just uh, paying thousands of dollars for um, one class, you can take a certain number of hours as part of a BioBuilder club or do an internship with BioBuilder, either as, as a teacher or a student and have that counted towards um, your degree. Yeah, I listen, I, it's, it's a great idea, I think. And certainly anything's possible. There's so many avenues now that one can pursue in order to, whether it's become a software engineer or a, you know, a lab technician or what have you. And so I think that anything is potentially possible. It's really just a matter of somebody, in this case, those that lead BioBuilder to decide, okay, we want our 
our curricula to be leverageable for college credit, for instance, and, and then figuring out what, what would need to happen for, for colleges to accept that. So I don't know if that's a strategic initiative for BioBuilder or not, but you know, anything is possible. But from your perspective, um, I guess the, from the legal side of things, what are some of the most important considerations for open education? I'm sure there are a lot. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think that there are a million different things that open education presents as opportunities and challenges. And perhaps the biggest one is if you go to a university's website and take their courses without paying tuition and maybe don't get feedback, don't get a you know, kind of critical review of your work, is that enough? And, and if, as long as you pass some type of certification exam, have you done enough to then be competent in the field? And I think that that is the, the big challenge for not only hybrid learning, but asynchronous learning and, and so forth is, you know, is it, is it enough? Is a, is a certifying type of exam enough for somebody to then move out of the learning environment and, you know, a competent nurse, coder, whatever it is that you've studied. I mean, and, and also who decides, who writes up this certification type of entity that then says, okay, you took these seven classes, take this test. Now you're you know, good to go. You are now a certified, whatever it is. So I think that all of those constructs take a lot of work and are hard to figure out. And not only does the learner want to know, now that I've done this coursework, you know, can I call myself a, a coder or am I really not good enough yet? Have I really learned enough? So it's that, that assessment and measurement piece. And it existed before online learning. It existed before BioBuilder, it, it, but um, before certification programs. Um, but I think that's going to continue to be a challenge as alternative learning environments continue to be more and more common. Is there anything you'd like to add uh, that I may have missed? I'm absolutely just delighted and excited to be here talking to you today and to be you know, part of BioBuilder even after many years of not serving on the board. It has been just a joy to watch the organization grow. As I said earlier, you know, my, my son has benefited from organizations like this and he's now you know, 27 and getting, getting his PhD. And I think that organizations like this really help incent somebody to, to pursue careers in science. Thanks once again to Karen for joining me today. It was great to talk to her about the early days of BioBuilder and what it takes to develop a new educational platform from the ground up. An insightful comment Karen made was on how meaningful education means to learn something that is applicable to your world or your life, and how this is integrated into the BioBuilder curriculum where students and teachers are taught to not only develop a better set of experiments, but a better reason for those experiments where we're forced to think about how bioengineering impacts the world around us today. I feel this episode will be very useful to anyone interested in hearing about the early days of BioBuilder, as well as learning more about the overlap between science and law in a startup environment. If you would like to learn more about anything Karen and I discussed today, please refer to the show notes. Join me for the next BioBuilder podcast. We'll welcome another wonderful guest whose career has been influenced by BioBuilder's life-changing science. See you next time.